Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Sheikh Hamza Karamali. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you for having me again, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, for those who don't know, Hamza is the founder of Basira Education, where he trains parents, teachers and scholars in high schools, weekend religious schools and a variety of other educational institutions, how to show their students why Islam is true. He's developed a textbook, an online teachers portal, and is on a mission to train 10,000 teachers. And I'll link to uh, his work in the description below. Today, Sheikh Hamza will be speaking on actually, something particularly interests me, and that is Ibn Sina's, Ibn Sina's influence on traditional Islamic theology. So it seemed like a good place to begin. Who was Ibn Sina? And can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yes. Um, so Ibn Sina, he, his name is Hussein. His father's name was Abdullah. And his grandfather's name was Ibn Sina. So he's Hussein, the son of Abdullah, the son of Sina. He was a Persian Muslim born in present day Uzbekistan uh, in the end of the 10th century. Um, and uh, so he, he was about, he lived about two generations after the peak of the translation movement uh, from of Greek philosophy into the Arabic language and Greek medicine into the Arabic language in the Abbasid age. Uh, so he, he's a philosopher. Uh, he was primarily a philosopher. He wasn't an Islamic scholar, but he was a philosopher. Um, he, but he wrote and studied in Arabic. The early translators, they worked with the Greek texts, they studied them, they commented on them, they translated them into Arabic. Um, Ibn Sina, he comes a little bit later, and this is a good thing, and it influences the way that he did philosophy. Um, he drew primarily on Al-Farabi, who's an other important uh, Muslim philosopher. He lived a generation before Ibn Sina. He was very influential, both in the East and also the West, uh, like Ibn Sina who's known as Avicenna in, uh, in, in Christian Europe, in Latin. So um, he learned, Ibn Sina, he memorized the Quran when he was 10 years old. Um, he studied logic as a child. Uh, he began uh, reading uh, Greek philosophy as his own, and he studied Ibn Sina. Uh, he learned from him, um, and it said he relates that he mastered medicine. Medicine then was a, uh, it was a philosophical uh, pursuit. Um, Galen, uh, and uh, so and he had he was successful in treating uh, the local uh, sultan, um, and because of which the sultan he gave him access to a library. He yeah. studied, he read voraciously, he began writing when he was twenty one years old. He was a genius, um, and I think that his uh, his most prominent works are two books. Um, although he wrote. To over 200 works on all kinds of uh, philosophical, scientific, astronomical, medical topics, music, he wrote music, he was a poet. Uh, but his most important books hmm. are, um, there's a book in medicine called Al-Qanun Fit-Tib, uh, which the canon of medicine, which was the, it's considered the most in, important, influential medical textbook all over the world in Europe. It was taught in Europe um, in Latin translation until just a couple of hundred years ago. Um, so uh, he, uh, so that was, he was known for his medicine. Um, and uh, so Islamic, there's this thing called Islamic medicine, Hikmah medicine in, in, uh, in the Indian subcontinent that people call Hakims. 
um, and this has caught on in the alternative uh, medicine community, that Hikmah medicine is Yunani medicine, Greek medicine, and it still has its um, Avicennan roots, which goes back to, to Galen. So he was an important uh, he was important in the field of medicine. It's a really important book that he wrote. I think the other really important book, which is what our conversation today will focus on, is called Kitab Ashifa. It's a four-volume work, and he uh, he um, took the philosophy of the time. So I think it's important for us to understand what philosophy then is. Philosophy then is basically Aristotle. Right. maybe from Plato. And what that represents is what the modern university represents today. So Aristotle, his works were compiled by his students and he wrote on everything. He wrote on logic, he wrote on ethics, he wrote on politics, he wrote on um, theology. And so he has a corpus called the Organon and it became the centerpiece of human knowledge. And I, I guess if I, could, if I could just mention, sorry, yeah. by Aristotle. Aristotle was a Greek, uh, what we would call today a Greek man. He lived, what, five centuries BC before Christ. And um, he knew Plato, another amazing philosopher, and Socrates, who, of course, wrote very little, if, if anything. But those three were all together, literally knew each other. They taught each other uh, yeah. 500 BC. So we're talking about some seriously old, you know, ancient figures who were directly influential in Europe, but, but also on Ibn Sina himself. So I just want to yeah. clarify who, who Aristotle was. And he's still a very important figure today, actually, in philosophy yeah. and political theory. And, but anyway, that's a different subject. Sorry. Right. Yeah. And so, so his, his, uh, his learning was the learning. So if you want to learn anything, you went to Aristotle. There are people who developed his work something called Neoplatonism. It yeah. tried to merge his thought with Plato. And there was... Um, work done within his system. And um, Ibn Sina, he inherits, that's what he was studying. So yeah. what he was studying when he, when he was self-taught and he studied all of these things, it would be the equivalent of somebody today picking up, reading all of the textbooks of political science and logic and philosophy and medicine and mathematics and just kind of teaching yourself and then deciding to, yeah, to so write, didn't, write, write. Didn't, uh, seek out these ancient philosophers. These were the standard curricula of the day in his yeah. university life. So that's why he yeah. was interacting with them rather than any other people, perhaps. Exactly. And so he, he studied it all. And then he wrote his own summary with his own Islamic flavor. So he, it's in Arabic. He, he inserts some Quranic words and Quranic concepts into it. And his book is called uh, Kitab Shifa. He wrote The Healing. And uh, there's many, he wrote other books as well, but this is his probably, it summarizes everything. Um, and uh, so that's uh, so his his uh, his works were he, he was uh, Robert Wisniewski. He has a, a important book called um, Avicenna's uh, Avicenna's Metaphysics in Context, um, and he considers Ibn Sina to be the end point of this um, Aristotelian Platonic philosophy. And he made the, the most original contributions after he said that the reason why he did that was because he wrote in Arabic and he was self-taught and he didn't feel obliged to adhere to any kind of conventions. And then his works were later translated into Latin 
Um, Thomas Aquinas was influenced by him, cites him by name, others as well. Yep. So um, that's, um, that's Ibn Sina. Yeah, so he's a clear polymath, as we would call him. He was a master in multiple fields, an expert mm-hmm. in many, many fields, which is very rare if ever happens today because of increased specialization. But he's also really perhaps much more influential in Europe in many ways um, but for his medical expertise. And as you said, his, his medical textbook was used in Europe as the standard go-to text for medical practitioners for centuries until uh, just several centuries ago. So that's remarkable cross interconnectedness of the Islamic and Christian civilizations going over, over many centuries. But how did Ibn Sina's Islamic beliefs influence the way he did philosophy? That would be my next question. So, um, there's, I think the most, he's known for something called the essence existence distinction, which he introduced. And I'll explain it in the context of his argument for the existence of God, and which is the main focus of, of today's uh, conversation. Um, if you go, to, go back to Aristotle, Aristotle had an argument for the existence of something like a God. Hmm. Aristotle, his argument is the argument from motion. He argued for the existence of a prime mover. The goal of Aristotle was to explain the changes that we perceive in the universe. So motion, movement, and change for him are the same thing. And he explained the changes on earth um, through the changes in the heavenly uh, spheres. He, he, he said that the stars, they're, they're embedded into uh, these concentric spheres that are clear and those spheres move. And that's how we see the, the, uh, the movements of the stars at night has like um, uh, astrological, you know, uh, significance and things came out of that. But he's, but he's saying that it's these movements of these heavenly things that influence the movements and change on earth. And he argued that the movements of these heavenly bodies, they, needed to be based on something else that wasn't moving. Um, And so there's an unmoved mover. So Aristotle's argument for the existence of God, it uses the language of potentiality and actuality. So he says that if the heavens are moving uh, or if anything else is moving, uh, it's potentially before it's changing. So a seed becomes a tree. So when you have a seed, it's going to become a tree. It's going to move into becoming a tree. So the seed is potentially a tree. Um, and so there's, this has this potentiality and then it's actualized into being a tree. Uh, so he says that in order to move from potentiality to actuality, there needs to be something that, that moves it. And that thing itself can't move from potentiality to actuality. It has to be pure actuality, unmoved mover. And that's his... Um, godlike being so uh so that's that that's how he expressed his argument for the existence of something that's like a god ibn sina when he articulate he didn't he didn't make the prime mover argument he made the contingency argument so he he if if you in in the in the shifa in his uh book of philosophy the way that it begins he, he starts by looking at the things that exist. And then he divides the things that exist into uh, either those that exist 
necessarily or those that exist contingently. So he introduces this, uh, these terms. Mm. Um, you can trace the, the, the existence of these terms back to people who came before him. Some people trace them back to Aristotle, but they're given a new significance in Ibn Sina. And he, his argument for the existence of God is that the universe is contingent. It needs something. Um, and he doesn't use potentiality and actuality. And, and it depends on a necessary being. So when, when he describes the contingency or necessity of things, then this is, he's describing their natures, their essences. And then, there he, and then he's asking the question of whether or not things that have certain natures, they exist. So he introduces this idea of essence, this idea of existence, and so in his in his philosophy and in philosophy ever since there's people they they argue about what it means for something to exist mm. what kinds of existence are there what does it mean for something to be um, an essence what kind of essences are there so and and this has it's so ibn sina was not a scholar he's not he's not a religious scholar but but he was a muslim and he's a muslim philosopher he memorized the quran um, so, and he lives in a Muslim land. So he's influenced by uh, his beliefs in God and he's, uh, he's an independent thinker and, and his God is, a, um, is someone who's a necessary being. And so it, it comes in, in this way, into, uh, into, his, um, into his metaphysics, into his, into his theology. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, he's hailed as a, a great um, Islamic philosopher, but at the same time, it seems like he wasn't Islamic enough for many Sunni theologians. <laughs> this is where we get into uh, interesting territory now. So why was that? What, what, what's that about? So there was a scholar by the name of Ghazali. Imam Ghazali is my favorite scholar of all time. <laughs> about him sometime. But he wrote, he wrote many books. One of his books is called Tahafutul Falasifa, means the incoherence of the philosophers. Right. And guess um, what? I, I'm going to hold it up, but you're going to do this. You, you've got the same copy, haven't you, I think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, uh, here we go. Al-Ghazali is the incoherence of philosophers. It's quite a, a big, fat uh, tome. And it just says on the inside cover, the incoherence of the philosophers, this book by Al-Ghazali, ranks amongst the most important works of one of the most fascinating thinkers in the history of Islam. So this is a monumental work um, not to be sniffed at. There we go. There's my copy. Yeah, um, yeah that's an excellent edition. It has the English and the Arabic. Yes. Um, so, um, so Ghazali, mm -hmm. he is, um, he, 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 the introduction to this book is really fascinating. Um, it shows um, so the incoherence is actually, it's, it's, a, it's a philosophical work. So sometimes people, they say that Ghazali, he finished off philosophy or something, um, but that's not what he's doing. Because when he's saying, he's talking about the incoherence of the philosophers, he's showing, and the philosophers, two primary philosophers that he's treating are Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina. He mentions that in his introduction. So he, uh, he, when he's saying they're being incoherent, he's saying that they're actually philosophically inconsistent. So Ghazali, he says that the, the educated masses of, in his time, uh, philosophically educated masses in his time, they are enamored by the works of the ancients because they, they make logical arguments. They talk about all of these topics 
that that uh, religious scholars aren't talking about, and uh, they talk about the universe and the celestial spheres, and 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 so people they read, they they're impressed by what they read, mm-hmm. and because they're impressed, they just accept it all wholesale, uncritically. So he says that that they're not being critical, and and so he, his goal here is to show that they 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 are philosophically incoherent on certain areas. Um, and he says in many areas, they're not philosophically incoherent. They're perfectly okay. And he mentions mathematics is, there's nothing wrong with that field. So he's, he's willing to um, accept them where they're right and, he, and philosophically engage them where they become, where, they, where they're inc- incorrect. Um, and, and so this book, The Incoherence is, it's really important in, in Islamic intellectual history. So he, um, he critiques Ibn Sina because Ibn, Ibn Sina was not a scholar. Ghazali was a scholar, meaning that he studied uh, he studied uh, Islamic law, he studied the Quran, he studied the Sunnah. He was the leading professor, the head professor of the Nizamiya Madrasa in his time in a major Islamic city. Um, people used to come and graduate from him, um, and uh, and so he is a religious scholar and he is evaluating. Um, the works of um, Ibn Sina, which is becoming increasingly influential. And he notes that Ibn Sina, uh, he reaches conclusions on certain positions that go against what the Quran says. And so he wants to, he wants to say that this goes against the Quran, but he doesn't just want to say it goes against the Quran, don't believe it, burn the books, don't read it. He wants to say that it goes against the Quran. Let's engage it, engage it rationally and see whether or not it's correct. And so he outlines a number of errors that Ibn, Ibn Sina makes and he gives philosophical arguments for them. And many of them, they actually, they, they prefigure modern science. And because Aristotle, he made a number of scientific mistakes that, that, uh, that, uh, that hindered the the progress of science, Galileo and everything else. And, uh, and uh, you know, the things that Ghazali does, it removes many of those uh, obstacles. That's a topic for another time. But the, uh, he, uh, so he does that. And then on three counts, he says that Ibn Sina's conclusions are actually very serious. And he said that this, this constitutes somebody who holds these positions would not would no longer be a Muslim if they if they hold if they hold those positions. And th- those three positions are the denial of the bodily resurrection um, and the fact that God doesn't know the details of things. So Aristotle's God and Ibn Sina's God doesn't know in detail what's happening, just has like, like a, a, a general uh, conception. And the third thing is the fact the eternity of the universe. The universe did not begin to exist. It didn't, it didn't, it wasn't created ex nihilo. So he gave philosophical uh, explanations. Those three beliefs that that, uh, Ibn Sina held clearly contradict the teaching of the Quran. The Quran does teach the universe or the earth had a beginning. It was created clearly, does teach um, the resurrection of the dead, obviously. And of course it does know particulars because it says in one place, you know, that God knows, you know, a, a leaf falling in a dark place. Exactly. He, he, he knows atoms. So uh, I, I've always found it odd that uh, Ibn Sina denied those when the, when he, as you say, he knew the crime by heart and that he would have known what the Quran teaches. And yet he insisted nevertheless that he knew better than the Quran. It seems, it seems paradoxical to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, hmm. 
I mean, so it's he's he came to he used his mind. He says, I disagree with this. And so he made arguments for why he disagreed with it. Mm. So, OK. Yeah. Um, so how would you respond to the claim that despite the fact that Al-Ghazali and the later Asherites who followed him were at serious odds with Ibn Sina, perhaps even not considering him to be Muslim? And by the way, I'd like you to address the question, did Al-Ghazali actually tack fear Ibn Sina? Because it sounds like he did, but maybe he didn't. And yet they took, they, they actually took some of their most important arguments, such as the argument from contingency from Ibn Sina. So there's two questions there. One is, did he, did Al-Ghazali tack fear him, in fact, because he could have done? And and secondly, why did he take arguments from him? Because he's doing he was, you know, so, so wrong on some points. So he, Ghazali uh, lived after Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina is long gone. Um, uh, so uh, Ibn Sina isn't alive when Ghazali is writing. Right. So he is, but there's other people who are holding his ideas and propagating them. And the source is Ibn Sina. So uh, Al-Ghazali, he identifies the source and, the, and he talks about the ideas. And then he, he talks about the ideas. Um, so use the word takfir. So what's takfir? Takfir is to say somebody is a kafir. Yes. So meaning a non-Muslim. So, so the way that we, unfortunately, we understand this is that it is a means of excluding somebody from the, from the Muslim community, saying that I'm not going to talk to you, saying that, you know, just a social kind of ostracization. Right. But there's, that, that's, not, that's not what Ghazali is doing. What Ghazali is doing, uh, what Ghazali is doing is he is answering a philosophical question. And that philosophical question is that I am a Muslim. I'm a Muslim. And as a Muslim, I believe that Muhammad is God's messenger. So when I, and, and, and when believing that he's, a, he's God's messenger means that if he tells me there's a resurrection, I believe it. If he tells me God knows everything, I believe it. If he tells me that, uh, that the universe began to exist, I believe it. So I'm a Muslim. And I want to believe in what the Prophet Muhammad said. So now this person is saying something. And uh, now there's disagreement over, over. There's many things that the Prophet Muhammad said that scholars disagree about. Hmm. And there's room for disagreement because many things that, that, that he said were not stated clearly. They haven't been transmitted uh, with uh, conclusive evidence. There's room to say that, that he probably, maybe he didn't say it. But there's some things there are some things that he said and taught that every Muslim knows. And, uh, and so the, the classical example of this is that it's unlawful to drink wine, you know, or to eat pork. So, so this is something that every, Muslim, Muslim children know this, and they know this from generation to generation, all the way back to the prophet. So what this means is this, this mass knowledge it means that there's a general transmission of something from the prophet, practical transmission from generation to generation in such a clear way. It's like the azan that's given or, the, or fasting in Ramadan. Like it's just, it's just the, the, the social effects of belief in what the prophet said that have been preserved by hundreds of thousands of people and every generation passed on. When you look at this, from a philosophical perspective, historical perspective, it leaves you with absolute certainty that the Prophet Muhammad taught this. Mm. 
So now, now, so what that means is that if somebody, if somebody says, I don't, I don't believe in this, then they are not believing in the Prophet Muhammad. And if it's important to somebody to believe in the Prophet Muhammad, this is a question that they have to ask. They have to ask that if I hold this position, does it constitute disbelief in the Prophet Muhammad or does it not? And the Muslim and, and, and Sunni scholars like Ghazali, they they gave so much latitude. They said if there's any way in which somebody could theoretically say that the Prophet Muhammad didn't say this, then your iman, you're, you're still considered a Muslim. But there's some things that because of this social transmission on mass, it's just anybody with a mind who looks at it, you, you have to say that, the, that, you, that if you're doing this, the Prophet Muhammad didn't, uh, you're disbelieving in the Prophet. And so Ghazali, when he says that on these three points, and on these three points, what he's saying, he's not issuing an edict of social exclusion. Right. But he is answering a philosophical question that is important to a religious Muslim living at that time. And uh, so, so, and he says that on these three counts, yes, to hold this belief, he doesn't say Ibn Sina is a kafir, burn him at the stake. You know, uh, so he says that on these three right. points. No, he's making a philosophical judgment then. He, yes. He's not making a legal ruling on the status of someone, whether or not they're part of the community or not. He's making a philosophical judgment on what today we would call a very academic point or, or the, a very substantial point about core matters of creed in a way. But what does the Quran say about the resurrection or the eternity of the universe or God knowing anything, you know, uh, these are fundamental matters. Okay. And, you know, I think it's very significant that, you know, we can pick up the incoherence today Mm. and, and not just incoherence, we can read the Shifa, you know, the Shifa has also been, been, been translated and Ibn Sina, despite Ghazali's judgment on his ideas amongst Muslims, uh, you know, Muslim in, in the Muslim scholarly tradition, in, by the theologians, by the logicians, he's called a sheikh al-ra'is, which means the the chief sheikh, because because he was he was he was really intelligent. He said a lot of good things, and but where where he was disagreed with, you engage him, and you can still know what it is that he said. And if you study Islamic theology, one of the things that comes out is the is the intellectual openness and humility of the Muslim tradition, because we can. We know what the that we know what the Mu'tazilites said. We know what all of these sects. We know who, who who the people were that said this. We know what they said. We know why they said it, and we study why they're wrong all the way to this day. And when I compare this, you know, to to like the history of of the West and Christianity, you know, there's this sect in in the Balkans called the Bogomils, and the Bogomils they were a dangerous heresy in uh, in Christian Europe. Um, and the Catholic Church, you know, they, they, they posed a threat to the Catholic Church and they converted in huge numbers to Islam. Many of the Bosnian Muslims, they, they, they have, you know, they go back to, uh, they trace their roots to this, to this sect, but nobody knows what they believed in. <laughs> we know they existed, but their books are burned. They're prohibited. You can't read them. And so when you, when you try to do the intellectual history of, of Christianity and what other sects have believed is a really difficult task, but it's but our tradition is you know it's I, th- I think it's, it's a testament to uh, it's a it's a uh, and you know it's amazing.
There, 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 are, there are many. I mean, you speak of the heresy hunting intolerance of the Christian world, in the, uh, in contrast to the Muslim world, and, and how they treated people like Ibn Ibn Sina, and we still have his works. Well, one of the most famous examples of that in historically is a man called Michael uh, Servetus. Um, you can Google him. He was in the 16th century, and uh, he had the misfortune of uh, having views. Um, he was a Christian, but he had certain views of the Trinity, which were very radical for his day. He wasn't actually a Unitarian. He's often said he was, but technically he did believe Jesus was divine. But his understanding of the Trinity was very, very uh, unorthodox. I'm not going to go into his views. But the point was that <clears throat> he was actually, uh, he, 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 for some inexplicable reason, he went to Geneva where the famous reformer John Calvin uh, lived uh, and worked. And he was detained and uh, he was charged with multiple accounts of heresy and um, John Calvin, who, who today, interesting, John Calvin is a really important figure in the West. Yeah. If you're an American, if you're American evangelical, you will know about John Calvin. He is like the, 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 the grandfather, the granddaddy of more American evangelicalism. And they call, they, they call themselves Calvinists. So they looked at this guy as this great theologian. He wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion, this huge volume of systematic theology, which I've got here. And I mentioned him is because he publicly called for, as an official in Geneva, for the execution of John Michael Servetus, as did everyone else in that day, other reformers, Martin Luther and others. And the poor guy, Michael Servetus, not only did he have his books burnt, which they were, he had himself burnt at the stake. In fact, he, he was put on the stake with his books and he was burnt to death. And he died in 15... 15- <laughs> 53. You compare and contrast the intolerance, the extreme intolerance of the Christian world and their leading people they look up to. Now, now there's no dirt attached to John Calvin now in the, in the Christian world that I'm aware of, even though he publicly called and ordered the execution of his Christ, uh, fellow Christian in Geneva because they had a difference of opinion on the doctrine of the Trinity. So the contrast couldn't be more extreme between the extreme intolerance of the Christian West and the great tolerance of the Muslim world at that time. And this is not an isolated incident. These, is, these are typical of civilizational differences. These are uh, very, very archetypal, paradigmatic differences between the two civilizations over oh. centuries. And this is often not realized, but if you as I say, just Google John Calvin or Michael Servetus, and you'll see all the de- historical details, horrific details of the way dissenters, religious dissenters, and the intolerance how they were punished very hot i mean michael services bless him was burnt to the st- at the stake alive with his books it it, uh, it it staggers belief and a christian leader ordered this they all ordered it lots of christian leaders required and ma- mandated this anyway enough of mm. just wanted to share that horrific story which is actually very relevant to uh, I, I think to your discussion thank yeah, you it means it means you're not secure in your belief it means that when somebody raises a rational question, you feel threatened. It means that you don't have any argument. It means you can't rationally engage. It means the only thing, only option you have is persecution. And, uh, um, you know, it says a lot, uh, a lot of things. So you also asked about, uh, about um, so I think one more thing that I wanted to mention was that, that Ghazali actually, and the later Muslim theologians, they didn't take um, Ibn Sina's argument wholesale. And that's, that's why the incoherence, Ghazali wrote the incoherence. So he had, he had his argument, but although it was influenced by his Islamic beliefs, um, there were, he preserved elements of Aristotle 
in that argument. And he preserved the fact that God does not have any volition. Uh, God doesn't choose to make the world the way that it is. It necessarily follows from him. The universe didn't begin to exist. Um, he doesn't know things. So, uh, so there's a, uh, there's, so it's not actually just about contingency, but what is, what is contingency? Contingency means that the world is needy. Now, the, 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 the absolute neediness of the world, it is, it, it's reflected in the Judeo-Christian Islamic belief that the universe did not exist. It was nothing. And it was created by God out of nothing. And God directly creates everything at every instant out of his free will. And he didn't have to make it that way. He could have made it differently. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's real contingency. So there's, there was a, uh, there was a, um, there was a lack of, uh, of, of contingency in uh, Ibn Sina's contingency argument that, that Ghazali then corrected. And, and that, that was the thing that later on um, took hold in the Islamic world. Hmm. Okay, but my next question is really, <clears throat> but didn't they take, uh, they, uh, these, these Sunni theologians, take it from Ibn Sina and then modify it to, to suit their purposes? I mean, doesn't that mean that they took from him? They, they, they borrowed teaching, they learned teaching, and that the central argument of the Muslim theologians is taken from someone who many of them thought made theological mistakes. And this makes it might seem paradoxical. Well, uh, I don't think that's the case. So it's kind of like um, it's kind of like in our last conversation we talked about the Quranic design argument. Mm. Right. So there's an intelligent design argument that's made by the Christian evangelicals, and this intelligent design argument for the existence existence of God uh, marshals evidence from modern science. These wonderful photographs that you uh, publish, no design. You just look at that. Oh my God, like how can anybody imagine that God doesn't exist? And, uh, and so it's a, it's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a great start to an argument. So if we as Muslims take this and then go back to our own religious commitments and add uh, contingency to the mix, then we take their argument and we make it native to something that's already there in our books. But when we do that, what we're doing is we are engaging with the concerns of the time. We're using the language of the time and our argument becomes more effective and it gains a language and idiom that allows people to understand things in a way that they couldn't otherwise have understood. So, so, so this is, so it's in the same way with Ibn Sina. Um, he, he believes in God. Like there's, lots of people who believe in God who aren't Muslim. He's engaged with something. He's done a good job. He's not quite there. Um, and he's influenced by his own uh, uh, religious commitments. So if I, as a Muslim, Ghazali comes along and says, well, I believe in the contingency of the universe. There's verses of the Quran about it, Allah Samad, and many other verses that depend on it. And now he, but what he's done is he's connected it to the scientific concerns of the time. He's using the language of the time. He's using the language of the modern day intelligentsia. And so if I just take it and tweak it and make it fit, then uh, it becomes a, an excellent contemporary expression, an effective expression of what I believe. And so I've 
I haven't, I haven't taken the idea from him, but I've used, I've, 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 I've used, I've used what he's done to better express what I already had uh, uh, before. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. So how exactly did Ibn Sina influence traditional Islamic theology, if at all? Um, so he had a huge influence, and this is why. So, so the, there's two things. So remember, Ibn Sina is a philosopher. Now, philosopher, the Arabic term for this is a philosoph, falsafa. So falsafa, Ghazali, when he talked, when he talked about it, and others, they they described what the philosopher are doing. Ibn Sina himself describes it. The goal of the of the philosopher is, I want to discover everything that I possibly can using my mind. And I'm not going to I'm not going to use anything else. I'm not going to use a holy book. I'm not going to use revelation. I'm just going to use my mind and figure everything out. This is this is philosophy. So in this sense, the modern university is entirely philosophy because when you do. Uh, when you do science, you do economics, you do any subject, you're just trying to figure things out with your mind. So there's this, it's this enterprise of using the minds to figure everything out. So Ibn Sina, that's what he's doing. Now, I, as a, I, Ghazali says that, well, I'm, I'm a Muslim. And so I have the Quran as a source of knowledge. I have the Sunnah as a source of knowledge. I go to the Quran and I gain knowledge from it. What do I do? Traditional Islamic theology, it says that uh, belief is divided into three categories. Belief in God and his attributes, belief in prophets and messengers and their attributes, and then belief in the unseen and the afterlife and, uh, and, and, and how to, you know, ethical behavior in this life and so on. So the, the first part, existence of God, the Quran actually teaches us to use our minds to see that God exists. And the Quran actually teaches us to use our minds to come to the inference that the Prophet is a genuine messenger. And when I do that, I see rationally that God exists and the Prophet is his messenger. I see, in other words, that Islam is true. That is the why Islam is true thing that you mentioned at the beginning that I, I work with. Yeah. Then what happens is now a door of knowledge opens up to me. Now I can pick up the Quran and I can say, I believe based on evidence that this is coming from God because I know that Muhammad is God's messenger and he said this. Now I can use this to discover things that, that somebody could not discover using their mind alone. Right. Um, I can discover resurrection. I can discover what's going to happen after I die. I can discover what God has come, how God has commanded me to live in this life. I discover all kinds of things. So what? So this is, so Ghazali is taking this and then Ibn Sina has this rational system. And so the theologians, they said, why don't we take the rational system, which is the university uh, knowledge of the day, and use that to do the first two parts of our theology, to prove that God exists and to prove that prophet, the prophet is God's messenger, and take it back to first principles and bring logic into it and bring science into it and just do the whole thing. And so we'll and so and we'll use Ibn Sina for that because he he has a, he has a good first cut uh, system. So they take it and they transplant it and they they uh, you know sift out all of the other other pieces. And then at the end they add they add a piece about about the afterlife. Right. So the late, later theologians like um, Taftazani, he wrote a book called Sharh al Aqaid and Nasafiya, probably the most influential book of Sunni theology across the world, still studied to this day everywhere. Um, 
he describes the development of traditional Islamic theology, Kalam, and he's and he says that it went through various stages. And he said in the last stage, what happened was that it merged with falsafa so that it became indistinguishable from falsafa, except for this last part, which is like an appendage. Yeah, and then and then uh, and so and, and then what happens is that this is theology, it now becomes this is one of the names for the science of Islamic theology is the foundations of religion, Usul al-Din. Now, if you have this basis, now when you do tafsir of the Quran, explain a verse of the Quran, you're doing it on a rational foundation that this is the word of God. When you explain a hadith of the Prophet, you're doing it on a rational foundation that it's that it's that it's that it's from the Messenger of God. And so it's this it what it's done is it's taken all of our religious beliefs and integrated it um, seamlessly into the university knowledge of that time. And that's how Ibn Sina, that's, that's how he influenced Islamic theology. And it's, it's really, but now it's outdated. You know, and that's like the, our, our contemporary challenge. Our contemporary challenge would be to do. Yeah, I was gonna say our contemporary challenges are, are of a different uh, nature. Uh, um, but my last question really is, what are your thoughts as, as a traditionally trained scholar on the intellectual history of Ibn Sina in the academic world? Um, so I'm quite critical of it because I think that the, what we call the academic world, mm. it comes from a particular view of religion and humanity. The prevailing view, um, the prevailing view is that, um, I guess the modern, if you, if you put postmodernism aside, like modernism is the idea that there are these um, ancient Greeks, pagan philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, like you mentioned, who used their mind and did these wonderful things. And then you, and then Christianity came along and you fell into the dark ages. They banished, they closed Aristotle's school of philosophy. But luckily they were the Muslims, right? The Muslims, they, they were there to catch the learning of the Greeks. And their only role <laughs> is to catch it and transmit it back to the role. West. Yeah, this is a yeah. Western narrative, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a and technical it's, it's, thing of just translating a bunch of texts. That's all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so that there could be a renaissance and an enlightenment, and we could rediscover in the age of reason, and so uh, the the great works of the Greeks. And so in this in this way of looking at things, um, the uh, you have reason, and then you have religion, which is irrational or at best, you know, irrational, and it's 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 you know faith based. And so, so now when I look at intellectual history of Ibn Sina from this perspective, from, the, from this uh, perspective, then, Ibn, si then what I'm going to, Ibn Sina is going to be somebody who's using his mind. And there are these religious people who don't really use their mind, but he's giving it, he's using Greek learning to give it uh, a rational foundation. But that's not how, how I think a traditional scholar like Ghazali would have looked at things. Ghazali would have seen the narrative of human history like this. He would say that the first man was the prophet Adam, who was a believer, and he used his mind and he was rational. God taught him the names of all things. He had vast knowledge, more knowledge than anybody alive today. And he taught people to that he was God's messenger and he taught them about the existence of God. Over time, his message got lost. And then, then, then God renewed it with another prophet. And again, it's based on reason and rationality. And there's this, uh, there's this, uh, there's this uh, loss and regeneration and loss and regeneration. 
And so when I, when when the, when we would when I would look at the way that I look at it is that there was Jesus, and Jesus is a renewal of that uh, of, of of prophecy. But then there's a corruption, and so the Catholic Church doesn't represent Jesus. That it's a degeneration, and that's why it's it's not rational. It's based on persecution, and the general the general narrative of of this perspective is that. You know, when the Prophet Sallallahu when he called people in Mecca to believe, he used his mind. He said, think about it. Do you follow your ancestors, even though they weren't guided? And they said, no, we don't want to use our minds. We're just going to persecute <laughs> you and kill you. You know, so the, the so it's the opposition that's that's irrational. And the ration, rationality is there tied with revelation. So from this perspective, when I look at Ibn Sina, I, I, I so what, he's 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 in the middle and and, and if he has Ibn Sina or Aristotle, you know, the, if when they make arguments for the existence of God that are good and that Ghazali and others then take, then I would imagine that they would have gotten it from some kind of a prophetic source, um, some or, or origins, so, because that's the basis. And God sent messengers to every people. Allah, Allah says in the Quran, There was not a single people except that there was a messenger, a warner that was sent among them. This includes the Greeks. So, uh, so when I when I see the great the great work of Aristotle, it's a there, it has an origin. It came from somewhere. It didn't just came come out of a vacuum, you know. And uh, um, so, uh, so I and I think that this is this is um, this is what's missing. What we need is we need people who are traditionally trained in Islamic sciences who can do things like Ghazali and to engage the modern. Uh, you know, intellectual arena in this manner without imbibing this uh, this academic uh, uh, well, the, way. But well, that sounds just like you, doesn't it? Actually, that's what you do. Yeah, you just described your job. <laughs> that's yeah, that's, this is what this is what moves me. <laughs> um, well, th thank you for that. I, I just want to recommend a book. Um, this one it's called Classical Islamic Theology: A Cambridge Guide to Classic. Is published by Cambridge University Press, and this is a very um, unique book in, in English. Uh, there are very few books uh, like this um, it, it, because it's on Islamic theology. That's from the Quran, basically, up to the 18th century. So it doesn't talk about modern uh, uh, contemporary issues, but classical Islamic theology. So the first part looks at the historical perspectives, looks at the Quran Hadith by Professor Abdul Halim. All these individual chapters, by the way, are written by world-class experts in the field. There's a chapter on early Islam and falsafa, the Islamic philosophy, uh, and, and the social construction of orthodoxy, which actually sounded really boring. When I read it, I thought, wow, this is really helpful. And then the second part is called Themes. So it looks at God, his essence and attributes. And then another chapter on creation, another chapter on ethics, one on revelation, cosmology and the existence of God, one on worship. It's interesting, a whole chapter on worship in a book on Islamic, classical Islamic theology. Another one in theology and jurisprudence, theology and mysticism, epistemology and divine discourse. And the last chapter, very appropriately, is called eschatology, which is to do with the last things. So this is a feast for the intellect, if you're into these things, and I certainly am. Um, I, it's actually very readable. Very diverse readership is edited by our own, say, our English, Tim Winter, uh, um, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, who had the immense privilege of meeting on Friday at the Cambridge uh, Cambridge Muslim College. And he's a he, he, he has been described by some people, I think, without hyperbole, 
as the modern Al Ghazali. And that, that is a compliment, a, a surpassing compliment. So anyway, he edited this and he actually wrote the introduction to this book. So if you want a really excellent introduction to classical Islamic theology uh, in, a, in an academic way, but it's still introductory work for the general public, I do recommend this. I think it's pretty unique in English as a standard introduction. So that would be my recommendation. If And, and that was one of the reasons why I contacted Sheikh Hamza Karamali. He was actually reading through this and I got up to uh, page 211, Avincina argument from contingency that's ibn sina in in the um and i thought that's interesting and so i contacted you and you said why don't we do what we've just done this, yeah. this session so that was the the background stimulus for our, our meeting today so I, i'm immensely grateful for to sheikh hamza karamali for your time your expertise you uh and um and and i hope this i'm sure this program would be your benefit uh, for understanding. Ibn Sina is immensely influential. It's difficult to overstate his influence historically on the West, let alone on the Islamic world. Yeah. Uh, and I think if we want to have an education and be able to have an awareness of the Islamic tradition, then we've got to at least understand who he was, when he lived, and what his influence was on traditional Islamic theology and on other matters too. You mentioned medicine and a whole bunch of other things. So he's a polymath, as I say. So thank you very much, uh, Sheikh, for your time. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Until next time. Inshallah.